0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We're going to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning. Ecclesiastes is a interesting book. Lots of lots of wisdom in there, but sometimes it's kind of kind of hidden, a little bit enigmatic as, as how the the preacher describes things to us. Um, one of the commentators says that the irony of the proverbial form is that it speaks wisdom but it also requires wisdom to be rightly heard and employed. And Ecclesiastes has quite a bit of that, where the, the preacher is speaking in a way that, that we sometimes don't quite get what he's saying. It, it takes a little bit of, of meditating and uh, dwelling on it. And I think that it's, it's worthwhile to just give another uh, kind of few thoughts about wisdom literature, because chapter seven is is one of the more difficult chapters in this regard It, it says some things that it just they 're almost backwards sounding it 's difficult to to know what exactly the the author is is meaning to convey to us um, and when we approach an ancient text like this, especially this kind of, of wisdom literature we can 't really approach it with our uh, modern, you know, looking for for clear propositional truth. It's it's sometimes a little bit a little bit hidden in there. You got to kind of get into it and work, you know, kind of get your hands dirty and and feel the text and and think through um, what the author's trying to get at. And we we have to get ourselves kind of oriented to. The, the the ancient way of dialoguing through a text, because oftentimes the Hebrews would be saying something, and then assuming that you'll be asking certain questions about what they've said, and thinking through those questions, and then as they continue, things are supposed to become more clarified. But it it happens in in kind of a a deep way, so. Well, chapter seven has has a bit of that. These these aren't really just like um, nuggets of truth that you can you know write down in your notebook and post up on your fridge or your car. I mean, uh, it, one of one of the things he says is basically it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Uh, you know, like what do you what do you do with that? <laughs> where's he where's he going with that? So I hope that we'll be able to unpack some of this. Um, but I thought it'd be um, good to just kind of talk about the the, the way that wisdom literature works. Um, this this chapter is is really about facing reality. <laughs> so I hope you didn't come here this morning for you know kind of an everything's coming up roses sermon because that's not really what we're getting into this morning. I, I hope that it will lead us to a really good, healthy place and challenge and encourage us. Um, but the preacher is, he's, he's inviting us to think deeply about how we view reality, the real world, how, how we interact with, with the everyday things uh, that happen. It, it's so tempting to want to kind of will our own reality into existence, Um, We we have expectations and hopes and ideas uh, of of how things should go. And and we can kind of operate with that at the forefront and, and hoping that reality conforms to those expectations and hopes. And the preacher is saying often throughout this book that that's just not how things seem to work out. But there is somebody in control of all of this, even when it feels like things are sort of crooked and twisted and don't make sense. And so we're kind of led, we're kind of led into this kind of uh, harsh dose of reality, but for a purpose. And in chapter six, we, we ended with um, the preacher saying that basically all of these things, whatever whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And and so all that has come to be, God has named it. And and God is not really explicitly being mentioned in this book, but what we see is is the divine, uh, the divine passive. We see God orchestrating, controlling things even in the midst when it feels like everything is empty, everything is vanity, what really has purpose and value? Sometimes it seems to go one way, sometimes life goes the other way. How do we know what's going to happen? Well, we can trust that God is still in control. So, this passage, he's often using um, this, this idea of something is better than something else, this is better than that. Or that is better than this. And usually it's almost the opposite of what we would think. And so just to prepare you for, for how, how this passage flows, this, we have to kind of take a look at this better than language and, and, and try and, and break it up so we understand what he's saying. Um, I've kind of organized it into four main sections. Um, the first section, we see these three better than statements that are tied together. And what the preacher is doing in this first section is telling us to be willing to face our own mortality. We have to face the idea of death. It's a reality for everyone. In the second section, he tells us that we need to be able to face our mistakes, to to look them in the eye. In the third section, he says, face your situation, what's actually going on. Don't, don't be trying to think, think back or, or think differently. Look it squarely in the eyes. And in the fourth section, he says that wisdom is what helps us to go about this process. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, the flow of what we'll, we'll be looking at this morning. Um, we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 7. And I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the way that this text draws us in and makes us ask some tough questions about life and reality. And and Lord, we know that we need to be grounded in that. And we need to trust that you are in control. And I pray that you would use the passage this morning to encourage our hearts and to remind us that you are good, uh, that you are sovereign, and that we can trust fully in you. We lift this time up in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1, chapter 7, the preacher says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now the first phrase, a good name is better than precious ointment, or perfume, something like that, is probably a common phrase. It has a uh, kind of a poetic structure in the Hebrew. Um, it's speaking of someone's reputation is better. A good reputation is better than, you know, a good smell. And and you know, I've I've noticed that sometimes when you're when you're talking with someone else and and a name comes up, maybe it's the name of a. A politician or a celebrity. And when you say certain names, people will almost sometimes have like a physical reaction. Maybe, you know, almost as if, like, they'll sometimes even like wrinkle up their nose when you say this person's name. Maybe it's just some regular person you both know. But they can react to that because a name can say a lot. It almost has a smell to it, in a sense. And what this proverb is saying is that your reputation is, you you can't cover it with anything else. Your reputation kind of bleeds through anything else that you do. And we're talking about a genuine reputation, not a false reputation. And, you know, it's, I don't know if, if you can think back, you know, to junior high days, um, but I remember, you know, as a, as a young boy and, you know, guys started wearing, you know, cologne and deodorant and, you know, you're in the locker room and that was just a bad place. But some of these, some of these, some of these guys, uh, I, I wasn't one of them, but some of these guys, they thought they could sort of, you know, skip the deodorant and just kind of pour on a little extra of that cologne, you know, the mist and walk through kind of method. <laughs> And, and, you know, if you've ever had that experience where, you know, you've got that cologne smell, it's, it's, it's decent, it smells good, but then there's something else going on there. And and you're like, I just, I don't think that's working. So, some of you guys are chuckling, chuckling nervously. Maybe <laughs> Maybe this is more of an application point in the sermon. But this, that idea that nothing else can cover up a reputation, if if you are known, if if you genuinely have that bad reputation, then, you know, it sticks. And the second part, he says, and this is the surprising element, he says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, that's kind of strange, right? The day of death better than the day of birth. So, It's intended, again, like I said, to give us pause, to make you stop and say, what in the world is he talking about? And all of the imagery here is actually kind of connected because a name is related to the day of birth. So when you're named. Ointment is also related to the day of death. You know, for them, it was, you know, preparation of the body. And and so the, the whole picture here kind of starts to work together Uh, Because on the, on the day of birth, you don't really, you don't know what's, what that life will hold. It's unknown. There's uncertainty. Reality is not fixed. And there can be hope there, you know, there's hope on that day, but sometimes that hope can be disappointing. There's many, there's many a life that has gone astray. And remember the preacher is looking from this vantage point. Of of all, he's he's seen young lives, promising lives, take very wrong turns, and seen the opposite as well. But on the day of death, everything is more or less has been made clear. You know what the life is. You know, uh, to use kind of Paul's word, the words, the the race is over. It's it's done. It's completed. You you're not wondering anymore, and, and so. He's looking he's looking at that and saying, you know, on on the day of death, basically no perfumed oils on the body, nothing is going to cover that person's reputation, their name, who they were. It's set, it's finished. A good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death than the day of birth. So he's He's bringing us to that, that grounding of reality. Death is conclusive. It's not something we like to think about. And this is just the beginning of, of this first section, which continues in, in verse 2. He says, And it is better to go to the house of mourning, it's like a funeral, than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but if you have you know, a funeral written on the calendar and you have a, a birthday party or something else, a family party written, written on the calendar, you know, you're probably looking forward to the party, but not as much to the funeral because a funeral is, is difficult. It's, it's sad. Um, there's so many emotions. Um, there's so many things going on. It's so real. It just, that's reality. But then a party is fun. It's light, you know. You're you're enjoying conversation, good food. It's um, you you go there to escape reality, right? And, and so the reality is that what he's saying is that a funeral brings us back to remind us, like he says, the living will take it to heart, or should take it to heart, that there is. There is a only, you know, really one thing that is, uh, you know, confirmed, promised to us. Well, maybe two, we include taxes, right? But, you know, it's death. So that's, that's what we have to reckon with. Everything that we do, our life has to continue to keep in mind this is temporary. This is, this is going to come to an end someday, And so even, even though he's, he's speaking all his vanity, yet he's still cluing us in to the things that are important. It doesn't mean that it's all worthless in a sense, but that so much of what we focus on, so much of what we can get wrapped up in can be worthless. And we have to take care where we're placing our time, you know, all of, all of our energy, if it's simply to enjoy, can enjoy life and escape reality as much as possible, that's probably an unhealthy way to go about it. In verse 3, he says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Uh, another translation, the NET says, Sober reflection is good for the heart. So, sadness of face, sober reflection um, it's it's kind of ambiguous what exactly the Hebrew is saying there, but but the gist of it is that sorrow kind of again, leads us into what's real. it kind of it, it grounds us, and by sadness of face or sober reflection the heart is brought back to reality. It's it's thinking clearly about life. And it it allows us to recognize that one of the commentators says, honestly facing reality is better than distracting ourselves to avoid it. And I think that's a good way to put it. That statement is coupled with verse four that says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or that sort of, you know, fleeting happiness. So the preacher, he's building on this idea. Basically, he's saying that an escapist type mindset is unhealthy, is an unhealthy way to, to go through life because reality will catch up to you. <laughs> you will end up in the house of mourning someday, whether you're out, out watching or whether you're the, the, main, the main event, right? So it, it, it does come. It's something that can't be ignored. But from the Christian perspective, on the other side of the cross, I hope that we, we see that as Paul sees it, where he says, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We recognize that, that death is the gateway to eternal life. And we have hope in death, unlike the world And so we see even more clearly than I think, you know, we can even discern from what the preacher is saying as those who have the hope of Christ. So face our mortality. It's, it's real. It doesn't have to be depressing, but it is, it is real. It's something that should affect the way that we live. That brings us to our sec- second section, verses five through seven. And I've, I've titled it sort of Face Your Mistakes. In verse five, he says, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. I mean, I think that's one of the most difficult things is is to face the reality of our mistakes. Uh, I find myself when I've done something, you know, foolish, or or something I know I shouldn't have done. Uh, I'll often sort of present it as if you know it's it's funny, right? You know, you, you know, you won't believe what I what I did today. You know, haha. Ha. You know, and hoping that my wife will also chuckle along with me, um, but. The preacher says, this is foolishness. You know, we, we often look for that kind of, you know, easy way to a, escape responsibility. You know, it's like everyone does that, you know. Okay, yeah, it's wrong. It's not that big a deal. Let's laugh it off. You know, it's funny. And, and this imagery that he ties in here, as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, now, that's kind of interesting, the crackling of thorns under a pot. It's, it's this idea of, you know, thin, dry brush that you can pile up. If you were trying to, to cook something, if you pile it up under a pot and you light it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flame really big, uh, really spectacular for, for a few seconds, and then it's going to be gone. It has no value. It has no purpose. You can't heat anything with it. And so when we approach our mistakes in that way, just kind of constantly laughing them off, never owning up to our responsibility, it does does nothing. It has no purpose. It doesn't doesn't help us become wise or change our hearts. When when we ignore or uh, remove ourselves from Situations where we might be rebuked. I mean, maybe you have, you know, a friend like that where you know they're just going to tell you how it is, right? And you know they're not going to let you get away from it. And you might find yourself spending less and less time with that person and more time with people who will just kind of chuckle along with you. You might want to, you know, think about that. That could be a heart issue. And, you know, it's, it's difficult. Our mistakes are difficult, but, you know, we learn a lot from those mistakes. And, you know, I, we, with, with our kids, you know, it's constant. One of those things, you know, to try and help them understand, you know, what's wrong, what's right, help them deal with it. Um, I find that my kids will kind of buy into this idea where, where especially one of them will come to me and, and sort of say, like, you know, they'll, they'll start to tell a story about something they've done, which they know is wrong, but they'll present it as, like, you know, it's kind of funny. And they'll, they'll tell me, and you can see kind of anxiously, like, is, is he going to laugh? Is he going to think it's funny? Am I going to get in trouble? And, and so it's, it's trying to balance that that delicate, like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, ha ha, but also we need to learn from that situation. And so um, I find that sometimes they get really upset when I'm not willing to just kind of laugh along with them. And when I kind of go into my lecture, dad lecture mode, which, you know, they're like, don't, don't, what do they say? Don't, don't give me a, dad, I don't want to lecture. I don't want to lecture. Don't preach at me. Um, But, you know, in my heart, I'm the same way. And I need to be honest about that. So there's some helpful imagery here. Laughter of fools like crackling thorns under a pot. It, it, it's, it's pointless, it's worthless, it can't do anything. Verse 7 in the Hebrew is connected somehow to this. It says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. I'll just be honest, I don't know how it connects, <laughs> neither do most commentators. Um, <laughs> it, it just seems like like a, another wise saying thrown in there, oppression drives the wise into madness. Even those who are wise, if, if they're constantly bombarded by things, um, if there's, you know, it can, it can even affect them. Um, a bribe corrupts the heart you know so somehow maybe that's that's all tied into this all of this imagery this idea of of needing to to confess to fess up to mistakes um but it's it's a little bit unclear and in the in the spirit of wisdom literature i'm just going to leave it at that and let you meditate on it <laughs> um verse 8 face your situation this one is 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 one of the most interesting sections to me it says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The The end harks back to verse, verse one, the day of death better than the day of birth. So Classic wisdom literature, we start going in circles. We're starting to repeat ourselves. It's emphasis. It's getting you to, to, to think and rethink and meditate and re You know, it's just, it's a constant process. And, and so here he's, he's hitting the same idea from another angle, but now we're dealing more with just situations. And v- verse 9, he says, "'Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools.'" And verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For this is not from wisdom that you ask this. So, so put together, this is, this is saying, it's looking at the present situation and, and challenging us as to how we think about the, the right now. And so the, the end is better than the beginning because the end of a thing is, it's done. You know, it's, it's grounded in reality. You, you know how it turned out. The beginning of a thing, it's, it's floating in expectation. You're wondering, how's this going to go? You know, <laughs> every job I start when I'm doing construction... It's like, you, you wonder, how's this going to go? What kind of problems am I going to run into this time? You know, it's, it's just, and then when you're done, it's like, you're done. You know, it, it's all been taken care of. You can step back. You know what happened. You know, you, you've, maybe you have the scars from it, but it's over. And, and so the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And he says, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So when you approach something new... The best way to approach it is to sort of patiently look at it and say, well, you know, here's how it could go good. Here's how it could. you're just kind of thinking through, like, let's see how it all kind of plays out. Let's, let's let it all work itself out. Here, here's kind of our hopes and expectations, but we submit those to the plan of God. And, and unlike those who are proud in spirit, who I think in this context, it's saying basically seek to control, seek to control the situation and assume that they can control the situation. That to them, when the beginning, they've already equated it with everything they're going to do. And they, they, they think that it's in their hands. I think is the idea here, instead of patiently waiting to see how will God work it out? It's, it's in God's hands. And so the preacher says, you know, that kind of thinking is in, in line with, with foolishness. Um, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now, the, we could kind of take this, like, you could just apply this to anything, right? I mean, that's, that's the kind you know, you could take it out and just kind of put it on your fridge, Right. But it is in a context, it is in this passage here, in this this little snippet of wisdom. And so I think that what we're looking at specifically is the way that things go wrong within a situation, and you had expectations... And so anger is usually tied to those unfulfilled expectations. If you, you wanted it to go a certain way, you tried to get it to go that way and it didn't work out. And now you're angry because, you know, reality just doesn't always conform to what we wanted to do. And so he says, anger lodges in the heart of fools you know, a patient assessment of something allows for things to go awry. It allows for things to go outside of our, our plan and recognize that God's plan is still moving. It's still working. He, bringing us back to, to what he said in chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. God knows. He's, he's got it figured out. He's working through it. And so anger is a symptom. It's a symptom often of our lack of trust in what God is doing. That's convicting to me. Verse 10, he says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. So then in the midst of the situation starts off, things don't go according to plan, you're, you're in the thick of it and you start to think, you know, you start to think of the good old days, right? It's just that's what happens. You think, oh, and remember, you know, remember back when things were good, like remember when things were peace, peaceful and quiet at night before we had kids and like, you know, we could sit down and watch a show and no one was yelling and fighting and, you know, it's just, there's, there's, there's all these things that start to go through your mind in, in different situations. Um, <laughs> we call it nostalgia, right? It's nostalgia is an edited version of reality. Right? You've you've taken the past, you've edited out all the things you don't want to remember, and you've packaged it up into this sort of idolatrous idea, this idolatrous history of yourself. That's nostalgia. It, it has nothing usually to do with, with reality. And, you know, you're looking back on the glory days and you, taking those expectations that aren't even true to begin with and then trying to force them into the future, saying, why couldn't it be like that? Well, I mean, if you looked back, I mean, there was probably more difficulties than you're allowing yourself to, to actually think about. But also what you're saying is you're, you're questioning God's plan. You're questioning what he's doing. Because again, reality, according to the preacher, is tied directly to God's action. So nostalgia is a dangerous version of reality. It can easily become an idol, looking back on how we, we wish things could be. Verse 11 and 12, we kind of start to wrap it up. Facing reality requires wisdom. It says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of wisdom is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, the translators kind of struggle with this first phrase wisdom is good with an inheritance. Some of the translations say wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing because the way that the phrasing is it can it can mean both I don't know honestly but I wouldn't be surprised based on the way that Hebrew structure works if it doesn't mean both because it could have been that wisdom is good with an inheritance was a common phrase because, you know, you get an inheritance, but you have no wisdom. Well, you know know how that turns out, right? So that could have been the common, well-known phrase. But the preacher might be sort of playing off a nuance there in the preposition, so that what he's actually using it to say is, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, or wisdom is just as good as an inheritance. Someone passes you down money hey great that's nice but even better someone passes you passes down to you wisdom so then we read it from that standpoint and it says it's an advantage to those who see the sun those who are alive and the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. So we're getting back into that comparison. You know, it, if, you have, if you have money, it only goes so far. But he's saying wisdom goes beyond that. And so that's sort of, that's sort of how we have to understand what it means. How do we engage reality? All the things he said before, we have to do it with wisdom. Wisdom is, is what allows us to have that protection that's better than an inheritance. And it it gives us the ability to see, kind of see clearly what he's talking about here. So we wrap it up in verse 13. It says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked In the day of prosperity, be joyful in the day of adversity. Consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So again, we see it come full circle. Basically, he's reiterating some of the ideas from the end of chapter six. It comes back. He says, you know, consider the work of God. Consider. Consider these things. Think about, meditate, reflect. How do you approach reality? Do you recognize that God is in control in everything that you do, everything that happens? Are you grounded in that? Hey, when things are going good, be joyful. That's reality. Let that joy show. But when things are difficult, consider God's, God's in that too. He's using that. Sometimes that's what we need, those difficult times, to reground us in reality, in the plan of God. To recognize, to to be reminded that we have to trust that God is good no matter what's happening. So we have to guard ourselves from being swept up in our own hopes and expectations of life. You know, we can face reality knowing that whatever happens is guided by God, that His sovereign hand is always there making his goodness known making his his plan shine through even when it feels like it's only coming through dimly we can trust that god is in control some of this brings us back to thinking about jesus jesus is the ultimate wisdom teacher And some of these these statements make us think of the Beatitudes, where Jesus is laying out what it means to, to be in the kingdom of God. How do we think within the kingdom? It's sometimes opposite of the way the world thinks. And in Matthew 5, we see things like, blessed are those who mourn. Right? Ring a bell. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Those are the kind of things that should make us think about it. How do we as citizens of the kingdom of God need to think about our reality, to think about the things that happen, to, to recognize God reigns supreme in all that transpires? So reality may seem harsh at times. It may be harsh. But as Christians, we have that advantage of seeing everything through the lens of, of God's working and his plan. We know that that this is the day that God has made. Whether it's a time of joy, whether it's a time of adversity, this is the day that God has made and that he is good and trustworthy and that reality is not something to be feared but embraced with our eyes on God and knowing that he is in control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wise words, Lord, that, that bring us back to the ground of, of reality, knowing, knowing that you are in the things that seem meaningless at times, that seem difficult, that you're using these things, and that we can, we can trust we have hope, we have peace as we keep our eyes focused on you. And as we, as we live in a way that, that doesn't seek to just escape the difficulties, but to face them, to face our mistakes, uh, to, to face our mortality, and to, to face up um, to everything that comes our way, Lord, knowing that you are good. And we, we praise you. I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning, and increase our peace as we learn to, to have a deeper trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.